Okay, I want, I want what they've got. And uh, you know what? We have what they've got if we have Jesus in our marriage, and if he's the king of our marriage. We're in a series of uh, messages called The Vow here during the month of February, if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor. And uh, we're just taking a look at some of the different uh, phrases that we hear when a marriage vow is given. And today we're going to specifically focus on that phrase, to love and to cherish. To love and to cherish. A group of children were once asked, what does love mean? And here's what some of them said. Tommy, age six, says, love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. That's, uh, that's what we just saw here, isn't it? Rebecca age eight, said, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore, so my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. Now that's love. Billy, age four, says, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different, you just know that your name is safe in their mouth. And then age six, Nika says, If you want to learn to love better, you should start with someone you hate. There you go. All right. And Jessica, age eight, says, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. So, to love and to cherish. And I want to look at a passage of Scripture that really helps us get a clear picture about what biblical love is about. It's in the New Testament book of 1 John. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 John chapter 4, and I want to read verses 7 through 12. You'll find that on page 863 of your church Bibles. And I want you to listen for what love looks like here as I read these verses, uh, and they'll also be up on the screen. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. The Apostle John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. This is the word of God. Now, as we look at these verses here this morning and we consider that phrase, to love and to cherish, um, I really just want to answer three questions. One question is, um, where does biblical love come from? What's the source of love? The second question is, Um, What does biblical love look like in real life? Love's display. And then the third question I want us to to consider is, 
What's the goal of biblical love? What's the outcome? What's the objective? All right? Love's source. Where does love come from? Love's display. What does biblical love look like? And love's aim, love's outcome, love's goal. What's the end game of biblical love? That's where we're going this morning. So when we think about this very first question, what is the source of love? What does John say? What does John tell us there? God, that's right. God is the source of love. Love is from God. Love comes from God and for, because God is love. Now, church family, this is the hardest truth for us to buy into right now as a part of this message. It's, it's the hardest. It really is. It is incredibly, it's incredibly uh, tough truth to swallow. And here's why. In marriage, sometimes we will experience what you might call a love drought. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? (laughs) A love drought. (laughs) A love drought shows up when um, there is a deficiency of displaying and sharing love to my spouse. When I become deficient in displaying love to my spouse, that's, that's a love drought. And signs of a love drought are disunity, conflict, misunderstandings, uh, and misunderstandings to the degree that we stop giving our spouse the benefit of a doubt. All right? And... And our, you know, our, our annoyance meter is just sensitized more during a love drought. And, and of course, there's a lack of intimacy. And there's anger. And there's discouragement. And, and if it's a long drought, there's this sense of hopelessness. The sense of, when's it going to rain love? When's it going to rain love? And, uh, and then on top of all of this, there's the, the, the idea of being a married single. A married single. We occupy the same roof, but we're just kind of doing our own thing. See? A love drought. You know what I'm talking about. Well, when this happens, when love droughts occur... There's a tendency to think that the cause or the source of the love drought has something to do with the deficiency that's specifically related to my spouse. See? Or, or, or the deficiency is you know, more because of my spouse. I mean, we're fairly mature, reasonable believers, and so we, we would be so bold to say, well, it's all her fault. We'll say, well, okay, I, you know, I know I'm not perfect, and then we add that, just, 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 just you know, that, that, that's awful three-letter word, but, right, but, but, I, I know I'm not perfect, but, and then we assign more responsibility to our spouse and the deficiency that's there, you know? 
But the scripture says that God is the source of love. Isn't that what we just read? So if there is a a love drought, if that's what's going on, then then could we not conclude, based on what the Apostle John tells us, that the root reason for the deficient display of love from my life toward my spouse has nothing to do with my spouse? It doesn't. It it has to do with a, a drought that I'm having with my relationship with God. It's not about my spouse and me. It's about my God and me. Love droughts stem from God droughts. Now, here's what I didn't say. I didn't say that if you feel like your spouse isn't loving you like you think your spouse should, then what you need to do is prod your spouse into having more quiet times and Bible studies and prayers so that your spouse will be filled up enough in order to love you. I didn't say that. I didn't say that, you know, what you need to do after church here is go out to brunch and encourage your spouse to pray and fast more, fast more at brunch, and, uh, and to tell them that the reason why that they're not loving you enough is because they don't love God enough, and this they need to, you know, if you love God more, you'd be able to love me more. That's not what I said. What I said was this. When love is not flow, and I didn't say that, It's wrong to desire love from your spouse. I said, when love is not flowing from my life to my wife, it's not because of something between Sarah and me. It's because of something between God and me. Because love comes from God. Verse 8 says, God is love. What John is telling us here is that love has a first name, and it's not Sarah. It's Jesus. Which leads to the question, how many of us are expecting our spouse to be the source of our ability to love our spouse? How many of us have set our spouses up as some sort of personal Messiah that we look to for deliverance and salvation and sustenance. And I'm going to expect you to be the source that I can dip my dipper out of your love bucket so that I I can give it back to you? That's, That's not what this says here. God, God is love. It's, it's, it's more than just a nice churchy thought. It means that God is the source. And, and my ability to express love, my, willing, my willingness, my ability and capacity to bend love toward my spouse says as much about my relationship with God as it does my spouse. So there's some bad news, good news here. The bad news is your love, your love drought problems are bigger than you think because love drought problems are really God problems. The good news, though, is that the solution is much bigger than you think because God cares and he wants to get involved. 
And the good news is, is that, that when we have more love in our marriage, it means having more of God in our marriage. So we need to buy into this, this truth that love comes from God, and God is love. Love has a first name. It's not Sarah. It's Jesus. He's the source. That's question number one. Question number two is this. What does it look like? Well, John answers that in verses 9 and 10, right? This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the apostle John, John's clear that that love is not an experience. Love is a person. And often what we think love is really isn't love at all. It's not. Uh, and, and, you know, we're like that little girl who came back from uh, the hamburger store and proudly told her daddy that there at the hamburger joint, she had a cheeseburger for lunch. And he was so proud of her. He said, sweetheart, you know, that's great, but you don't like cheeseburgers. She said, well, I've learned to like them. And daddy said, well, how did you do that? And she said, well, when mommy gave me that uh, cheeseburger, I, 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 I unwrapped it. And uh, first I took off the pickles and then the onions and then the ketchup and the mustard. And finally that big round brown thing in the middle. And then I ate my cheeseburger. Now she's a smart little girl. She learned the secret to liking cheeseburgers. Remove everything else and eat the bread. And then call that a cheeseburger. And we do the exact same thing when it comes to love. We do. We want, we want love, but only if we get to define it. Um, on Monday, this last Monday, um, Michael Novak had an article published uh, on Valentine's Day called the myth, the myth of Romantic Love. The Myth of Romantic Love. And in his article, you know, he poses the question, you know, when you see an American-made romantic movie, right? Movies in our country, you know, on, on, on romance. And, and, you know, you go back, there's the quintessential, uh, you know, um, The Princess Bride, right? And, and, and my favorite character in that is, of course, the impressive clergyman, right? <laughs> you know what's coming next. But join me in this. Marriage, marriage. I want to do that so badly at my next wedding here. I just, you know, oh, talk about a temptation. Um, so there's the you know the, the princess bride about true love, and then you know the, the past few years what was, there was a romantic. You know, P.S. I love you, and then you know, there's the there's the, the the big you know Hanks Ryan trilogy. You know, Joe versus the volcano, and Sleepless in Seattle, and you know, uh, you've got mail, and then of course there's uh, Saving Private Ryan. Well, no, not that one. Uh, uh, but the stories in these movies speak of a, a kind of a, a, a magical, mystical, Tinkerbell-like love at first sight, magic, true love, longing to be swept off of one's feet, uh, um, 
uh, and some speak of the idea that there's just one person out there for you. I mean, you, you, where, did, where did these ideas originate? Who made, this, who made this stuff up, huh? And Michael Novak writes in The Myth of Romantic Love that that, that, that storyline, that kind of narrative, goes back to romantic, Romantic literature in the Crusades. And um, he quotes uh, C.S. Lewis's Allegory of Love that talks about this. And, and Novak makes the point that this, this, this is very Western. Very Western. Romantic love is a Western invention. And he argues that it has had more leverage on shaping Western civilization's culture than the Reformation. He says many people spend their entire lives uh, looking for such love, wanting to feel such love, wondering when they're first attracted to another, if that's what they're now feeling. It's become a near obsession, supposedly the key to all happiness. Uh, uh, Above all, Novak says, most people love being in love. They love the feeling of loving. They love even the mad passion of being in love, of falling in love with love. It loves the feeling of never being satisfied, of being always caught up in the longing of dwelling and sweetness of desire. And for many, happiness is this kind of romantic Love. It's, it's the stuff of medieval literature. It's the stuff of modern American movies. And, and it's the stuff of country music songs. Lila, sing to us. Lila, I want to fall in love. I want to feel that rush running into my heart, shaking up my soul, feeling like I've never felt before. I want to fall in love. I want to feel that touch. I've only dreamed about it. I've been living without it, and that ain't good enough. I want to fall in love. Lila, Lila, that light at the end of your tunnel, sweetheart, that is a train that's going to mow you down if you're not careful. I mean, Think think about this. Think about that song. There's another little stanza from that song. Somewhere out there, someone else is searching like me, and I know he must be hurting. Maybe tonight he's walking down the same road I've been taking, and we'll meet up without even talking. Now, that is not a good idea. Okay? And, And we'll meet up without even talking, and he'll know what I'm saying. Oh, Lila, run, girl, run. And you know, <laughs> that's, 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 that's the West. And, you know, so, so when we're sitting here in a place like this, thinking clearly and soberly, it's like, yeah, well, that's not very smart. But why do so many buy it? Why? And I think it's because it comes across as effortless. We have bought into the myth of laborless love. Novak writes, Married love is not that of angels. It is that of sweating bodies, disheveled sheets, 
unruly hair, bad breath, scraggly beards, dirty diapers, and outside the door, clamoring little ones hollering for their breakfast. Christian love is earthy and realistic. Christian love is feet on the ground, realism supreme. Reality is always better than an illusion, and in regard to marriage, especially so. And reality supreme, reality supreme is what John says in verse 9. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. And what John is trying to tell us here is that Jesus is not some Middle Eastern guru, this great and enlightened religious shaman who lived 2,000 years back that gave Proverbs about life and love. He is God in the flesh. And that means he has the power that he will share with me to enable me to do what I can't do on my own. And how did that happen? Well, John says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What's that? Well, it goes like this. A love drought happens when love is not flowing from me to my spouse. And a love drought is caused by a God drought, and a God drought is caused by sin, disobedience, an insurrection against the Almighty. My sin obstructs the love of God. And so God sent His Son to pay for my moral crimes. Jesus received my sentence, which satisfied the justice of God, an act of love. Something Jesus did for me to turn aside or turn away the blast of God's justice, which would have incinerated me, and instead it hit him and it killed him. And, and, Three days later, because God is the God of the living and the dead, he raised his son and his literal bodily eyewitness attested resurrection from the dead proves that his death was sufficient for my sin and that his death on the cross was not for nothing. And you see, that's our struggle, isn't it? You know, we hear a preacher from the pulpit say, give your life, be selfless, stop depending on your spouse to be your source of love, to love your spouse. And because we are polite Midwesterners, we smile and we nod. And on the inside we say, I'll never do it. That's ridiculous. If I give myself away from my spouse like that, what if I don't get any love from my spouse? What if they don't return the favor? Then we'll grow old and then I'll die. I'm not going to do that. And the gospel says, you die in Christ and he will raise you up. He will raise you up and he will give you a resurrection body and the sacrifice will not be for nothing. It will be in the likeness of his own. He became what we are so that we might become what he is. Anyone who has that kind of power, that's the power we draw from in order to love and to cherish those that God wants us to love and cherish. And so from Jesus Christ, we learn 
what love looks like. Paul David Tripp said that from Jesus Christ we learn that love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. That's Jesus' love. It's willing. Jesus said in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Forced love isn't love at all, is it? It's the willing self-sacrifice. You see, love calls you to be silent when you want to speak. And love also calls you to speak when you'd rather be silent. Love calls you to act when you'd rather wait and stop when you'd rather continue and lead when you'd just as soon follow and cooperate when you'd just as soon do a power grab. Love calls you to give up your life, your agenda, your will. It's a willing self-sacrifice for the good of your spouse. Love has the good of another in view. Love's motivated by the interests and needs of the other. Love feels poor when the loved one is poor. Love feels rich when the loved one is rich. Love suffers when the loved one suffers. Love wants the best for the loved one and works to give it. Even if that means entering into a difficult conversation about love. It's the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation. In other words, love isn't a, well, of course I would like you to love me back. Of course I would. But biblical love is not a, well, you know, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. It's not a contract I love you if. It's not even a bargaining for some mutual good. Love, Jesus' style, is motivated by the good That will result in the person being loved. And love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. You see, if all we do is simply love the deserving or the worthy, what's that? We're not really motivated by love for someone else. We're motivated by love for self. And love is at its best when the object is unworthy and undeserving. Now, here's the deal, and you know this. There's never a day in marriage when we're not called to be willing. And there's never a day in marriage when some personal sacrifice is not needed. And there's never a day when you are free from the need to consider the good of your spouse... And there's never a day when you aren't called to do what is not reciprocated and to offer what has not been deserved. And there's never a day when your marriage can coast along without this kind of love. And there's never a day when you can concoct this kind of love on your own. You see, the Bible says, we love because he first loved us. God has to be the source in order to love the way he loves. And that means admitting to ourselves and to our spouses and to God that we just can't do, we cannot do this without the Lord's protecting, providing, forgiving, 
rescuing, delivering grace. Love looks like Jesus. He's the, he's the source. He's the display. And guess what? He's the aim. He's the outcome. You see, when the love of Christ shows up in my marriage, guess who shows up? Christ. Verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, since God so loved us, We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So the invisible God takes on the human flesh of your life through the power of the Holy Spirit so that his life in your life becomes highly visible. Love has a face. Jesus. And when we bend his love to the people in our lives, namely our spouses, guess whose face appears? Jesus. Listen to me. Listen to me. This is so important. (laughs) The most important reason to let love flow from God through your heart to your spouse's life, the, the most important reason is not so that you can have a happy marriage. It's not. It, it, it's, it's not so that you can be happy. It's not so that you can have a satisfied life. It's not for the children. It's not. The most important reason to let love flow from God through me to my spouse is so that my world, my neighborhood, my family, my wife might see the face of Jesus. That's the splendor and the beauty and the majesty and the glory of the risen Christ is the goal of marriage. It's not so that others can say, wow, what a peach of a guy she married. That's not the purpose. It's not so that people can say, oh, wow, isn't she just wonderful? No, that's not it. The goal is, wow. Now, what's the name of your God? That's the goal. You know, at, at, at some point, you have to just get settled and realize that you just cannot make your spouse change. You can't. If your happiness is contingent on your spouse's performance or, or the ability to control your spouse, then you're going to be doomed to the dungeon of frustration and hopelessness. And when you are tempted to believe that the only thing that stands between you and all you've ever wanted in marriage is your spouse, do you know God has a better offer for you? He does. God offers something better than you changing your spouse. He promises to change you. That's the better offer. He gives himself to you. And this doesn't mean that your spouse, you know, you know may not change. Or it doesn't mean that you shouldn't desire uh, transforming change together. It, it, it's just that, it, and it does, listen, some of us, we just believe that the only way that the face of Christ is going to be 
visible is if both of us let love flow from God to, through us to others. Well, well, that would be wonderful. And it's very possible, as so many of you could tell me right now, that the face of Christ is glowing beautifully through your life and your spouse isn't even a believer. See, so whether or not your spouse changes, God invites you to play a part of the most important program in history. And that's the program of letting God live inside of you so that he might be visible to this broken world. That's love. Jesus is the source, not Sarah. Jesus is the display, and Jesus is the goal. to love and to cherish. Uh, Roger and Becky had been married many years and uh, Roger began to suffer from early onset Alzheimer's. And his wife Becky remembers a journal entry that he left for her after a particularly troubling bout of forgetfulness. And this is what his journal said. Honey, today fear is taking over. The day is coming when all my memories of this life we share will be gone. In fact, you and the boys will be gone from me. I will lose you even as I'm surrounded by you and your love. I don't want to leave you. I want to grow old in the warmth of memories. Forgive me for leaving so slowly and so painfully. And through tears, Becky picked up her pen and wrote in Roger's journal, My sweet husband, what will happen when we get to the point where you no longer know me? I know what will happen. I will continue to go on loving you and caring for you, not because you know me or remember our life, but because I remember you. I will remember the man who proposed to me. I will remember the man who told me he loved me. I will remember the look on his face when his children were born. I will remember the father he was. I will remember the way he loved our extended family. I will remember his love for writing and hiking and reading. I will remember his tears at sentimental movies. I will remember the unexpected witty remarks. I will remember how he held my hand while he prayed. I will remember. I cherish the pleasure, the commitment and the opportunity to love and cherish and care for you because I remember you. That's love. Mm 